But now it is summer in OIC, and summer in OIC means psalms. Means psalms. We have been doing this for a number of years now. Every summer, we spend some time with this collection of songs and prayers and chants and poetry that we have in our Bibles and which have been organized and sort of edited under the name of the book of Psalms, which is a, a wealth of poetry and, and songs that we share uh, with Jewish believers as well, very old songs of spirituality, of longing, of search, And every summer, we look at different psalms, and we try to understand more about their place, their place as works of poetic art and also of worship and of prayer and as expressions of lived faith. And we try to understand what do they mean for us today. Now, the particularly interesting thing with the psalms is that, as I've said, they are meant for worship and prayer. They are, they are composed and written to be spoken, to be uttered, to be chanted, to be sung, to be prayed. So they're, they're made to be recited out loud and to be done that in the context of a life of, spa- of, of faith, but also very much so in the context of a community of faith. So when we receive this text that is both texts from God because we understand it as part of God's revelation in scriptures, but is also an invitation that is maybe a word of us to God, so we ask what place do these psalms have in our lips today, in our private devotion and worship and in our communal worship and practice of faith. Do they, can we sing them? (laughs) Can we pray them? How? And if you go through the Psalms and you know some of them, you will know that this is not always easy. We have some chosen ones, right, (laughs) that are easier, but then we have some that are not that comfortable language, and we might be like, okay, how does this work out? So every summer we spend time with the variety of different Psalms. And today we're going to talk about Psalm 84. Psalm 84, which is a wonderful work of poetry and a work in which the psalmists, it's, it's, it's assigned to the sons of Korah, so maybe more than one person here involved in composing this psalm. And the psalmists talk of this longing for the temple, this longing for the temple as the place of worship and the place of being in God's presence. It has been suggested uh, that this psalm might have been written by someone who was for some reason cut out from being able to participate in the common worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Possibly even a Levite uh, whose job and purpose was to not only worship but to serve in the temple. And that this person or these persons being cut out from that talk about this longing for the temple. But we don't really know any of that for sure. What we do have is the song, right? 
But I don't want even to start with the psalm or with the temple uh, or with whomever these psalmists might be. I want to start actually some hundreds of years later, not in Jerusalem or even in Judea, but in Samaria. Samaria. Samaria is where the Samaritans lived. Samaria, Samaritans. And the Samaritans were the result of the mingling and intermarriage of Israelites with local pagan people during the Assyrian oppression. And they held to many of the, of the same religious history as the Jews, and they considered themselves heirs and lineage of the same patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob. But they differed from the Jews in a lot of their religious understandings, and the Jews considered them to be an impure people. From the perspective of the Jews, or of most, most of them, they were sort of half-Jews, living out a half-baked religion that fell short of their standards of orthodoxy. Impure people. The Jews believed that because the Samaritans recognized only a small portion of what they understood to be God's revelation, uh, what we would maybe call today their scriptures, that because of that, that their view of God and their view of themselves was insufficient and ultimately that it was skewed and it was heretical. Now, quite aside from the content of the theological arguments, what this led to is that these arguments had over those long years developed to be outright prejudice between these two groups. We know what that looks like, right? Didn't even matter what you thought. You're a Jew, you're a Samaritan, you don't get along. And you carry a whole lot of prejudices against each other. This is how it worked. So here we are in Samaria, where a Samaritan woman in a highly patriarchal society is leaving the town carrying a few empty water skins and a bucket. And she's going to a well or more likely to a cistern. It's very often to have these cisterns that would collect rainwater. And there she plans to fill up her water skins and head back home and carry on with her day. But when she arrives at the well, there's a man sitting there. And with only one glance, she knows he's a Jew. And that looks like trouble. But she needs water. She needs water. She doesn't have water on tap. She needs water. So she goes to the well and starts lowering her bucket and filling her water skins. And I figure... This is just me imagining, but I figure she was hoping that this guy would just ignore her. Just let her do her thing and ignore her. Because certainly, the scenarios that she could imagine in which a Jew man would address a lone Samaritan woman by a well in the desert were not pleasant scenarios. None of them. But the thing is, this man doesn't ignore her. He talks to her, and the way he does it changes completely the way that that day had been going for that woman, and as far as we can guess, it changes her life forever. And the first thing that he says is, he says, 
Will you give me a drink? Can I have some water? And I want to read with you a bit of how that conversation goes, and we find it in Gospel according to St. John, chapter 4, from verse 9. Will you give me a drink? He had asked. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and a man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. We'll stop there. Okay, maybe you heard this story. Uh, If you grew up in church, maybe you heard this story hundreds of times before like I have, and you're so used to it that you sort of just sail through it, and we don't always notice the details, right? But let's take a minute here and, and agree that at least for us modern readers, readers, this is a very weird conversation. This is a very weird conversation. And this is a very bizarre change of subject, right? Because so far, the conversation seems to make some sense in the way it develops. There's sort of like a, a train of thought that we can follow, even if, it, even if Jesus says some odd stuff there along water, but, you know, they're talking about water. He asks about water. She says, where are you going to get the water? And then he says, I, there's living water. So there's just some sense to it, right? But why does this woman then suddenly start talking about where people should worship God? How does that have anything to do with the whole water discussion or with her unfortunate past? Well, there are some clues in the text itself, and I will give you some more. Because this is actually a turning point in the narrative, if we know a bit more about the historical and cultural context, we'll realize that this is the point in which we see that this woman now knows that Jesus isn't just talking about water. This is when she understands that that he's also talking about something else as well, something we might call spiritual, for lack of better language. Which doesn't mean that he's not talking about water, but he's talking about more than that. He's talking about more than water. He's talking about providence. He's talking about providence, and he's talking about God. 
And for that woman, as for Jesus, and as for any Jew or Samaritan in ancient Judaism in that time, these things go necessarily together. These things belong together, and they have everything to do with the place of worship. Providence, God, and the place of worship. I said there were some clues in the text itself, and the most important and the most obvious one is in verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well? And with that, they're not just talking about water anymore. With that mention to the patriarch Jacob, this woman is alluding to a long history of how both the Jews and the Samaritans understood themselves. Understood themselves as a people whom God chose through the calling of the patriarchs to be his own people, God's own people, whom God would care for and provide for and cultivate a special relationship with so that they would be God's people and God would be their God. And that's how the story goes, and that's how their sense of identity goes. Now, that Jacob gave the well is important. That them talking about that is important because it is a shorthanded way for saying this well was God's providence. This water we are talking about It's God's providence. It is a sign and it is a fact of God taking care of us, God taking care of us because we are his people and he is our God. And this has everything to do with the place of worship because the place of worship is where that special relationship with God is cultivated. It's cultivated so that it will be kept and so that God will not cease to provide. Water from the well goes together with the life of worship and the temple and the place of worship. For the Samaritans, the place of worship was this specific mountain where they had had a temple before in the past. And they still stuck to that mountain as the place of worship. For the Jews, the place of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, a temple which in many senses represented the very embodiment of their faith. This concrete sign of God's presence with them and of their covenant life with God. So strong was this theological and and emotional attachment to the place of worship that the spiritual tradition of the Jews produced things like Psalm 84. So let's leave Jesus and the Samaritan woman by the well for a little bit, and I want to read together with you Psalm 84, of which we have actually already sung today. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. 
Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on your shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So says Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place. When the psalmists speak of God's dwelling place, of the courts of the Lord, it is very likely that they are talking about the temple, the, the temple in Jerusalem. Not because they believed that God was actually contained in the temple in the sense that, he, that God was constrained by it, but because the temple was the place where the particular relationship between God and her people was embodied. The temple is where they went to meet God and where the cultivation of their relationship was put into effect through sacrifices, through worship, through learning, through celebration, and through community. So it is in that, in that logic, in that perception, it is from the temple that the blessing spreads over the land and is ensured, not only for Israel, but for all of the world and even for creation itself. Even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young a place near your altar. In the ancient Jewish perception of the world and of blessing and uh, of the world, the blessing and the well-being and the ultimate fate of the whole world depended on the cultivation of their personal relationship with God and that personal relationship with God was embodied in the worship in the temple. So the psalmist speaks of the temple and of the pilgrimage to it, this, this longing, this walking to the temple, and this life that is always directed to the temple. He's, the psalmist speak of it with profound devotion and longing, and they pray earnestly that God may strengthen and protect the king so that the king may restore and keep the temple and assure the safety of the pilgrimage so that this may keep on going, so that the means for the cultivating of this specific relationship with God may be protected and may be kept. The psalmist yearns for the temple ultimately because that means yearning for God and God's blessing, which is what the psalmist then sings out in verses 10 to 12, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked for the Lord. God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good things does he withhold from those 
whose walk is blameless. And these verses, they actually close the psalm by circling back to the beginning, which we may not notice because of our translation. In, in verse 1, uh, when, when we read, how lovely is your dwelling place, uh, how lovely means more, act, more accurately, beloved. How beloved is your dwelling place. It is the love of God that imparts beauty and loveliness to the temple. It is not the loveliness of the temple that attracts the favor of God. It is the love of God that imparts beauty and loveliness to the temple. And that's why it is cultivated in that way. If in this ancient Near East context, this can be perceived as being a very Jewish psalm, it still carries many of the basic understandings that Samaritans also had about the importance of proper worship and cultivating the specific kind of relationship with God that would ensure blessing, that would ensure providence, that would ensure life. And even if this woman was not a Jew but a Samaritan, she knows the similarities and she knows the differences well enough. So it makes a lot of sense that she suddenly starts talking about the place of worship when they're talking about God and providence and life. And now Jesus is standing there saying, I can give living water, flowing water, here and now. Not stale cistern water, flowing fresh water. And not in Jerusalem, not in Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, here and now. In other words, I can provide. I can provide as God provides. And if God did this for you through Jacob, I can give it directly to you. And then he says more. In verses 21 to 26, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus replied, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is an enormous claim. This is paradigm-shifting stuff. If that Samaritan woman had a smartphone, she would post a million like mind-blowing emojis, you know? all over. This is, this is paradigm 
shifting stuff. Forget that she at first was looking towards a more practical solution for her water needs, right? Here was this living person saying that because he was there, God was there with this woman, Emmanuel. The God who had provided through Jacob is there with her. And she could cultivate that relationship with the very God and provider of all things there and then. Not only was Jesus saying God can provide for you here, he was saying here you can meet and cultivate that special relationship with God that you associate with God's favor. You can do it here and now. Not because this is the right place to worship or because I've been to Jerusalem as a Jew or something, but because I, Jesus, the Messiah, am here talking to you. I, Jesus, am the embodiment of faith, the one in whom all of this makes sense to a much greater and much deeper extent than the temple in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. I am, in fact, God providing that which you need the most, that which truly gives life, water that flows beyond death. (laughs) I am the living water. How lovely is your dwelling place, sings the psalmist. The dwelling place of the Lord is beloved because God loves. And Christ is the perfect expression of God's love. The very embodiment of his grace, love, and presence in the world. That God, here and now with this woman, by the well, that God everywhere. This is paradigm-shifting stuff. Jesus was telling this woman that she, a Samaritan heretic, by all the standards of the ones working on the courts of the temple in Jerusalem, that she could sing Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place. And that she could sing it with the thirst-quenching perception that this God is there where she is. And so perhaps, perhaps we can sing Psalm 84. And this taste, this texture, this ring that Christ imparts to it, And we no longer speak with longing of our pilgrimage to the temple. That is not the tradition of faith that we walk in. We don't talk about the longing of our pilgrimage to the temple, this place of the encounter with God, but we speak with joy of our pilgrimage as living rocks of his temple 
as John puts it. We speak of God's presence with us through it all. We no longer speak only of a longing for God and for her presence, but we speak of a longing with God. A longing with God because we know that God's kingdom has come. A longing with God because we long for the things that God's kingdom brings and will brings and the things which we are a part in bringing. We long and we pray for the springs of water to erupt in the valley of Baca, which means the valley of tears, the valley of sorrow. And we long and pray for the springs of water to erupt in this valley of death at the same time as we declare the abundance of life that erupted from Golgotha, the place of suffering. And as God's people, we strive also to be the people that bring relief and that bring joy in a desert, in a landscape of suffering. Because we know that the living water that erupts in the valley of the shadow of death is Christ himself. When we sing in our pilgrimage that we go from strength to strength, as the psalmist sings, we join our voices with our very Lord and pray, give us today our daily bread. Today, your presence, today, your providence, today, your grace, today, your mercy, today, your presence in us, through us, with us, here. And I could go on. I could go on. But our time is is short. Our time is short, and more than that, we, we have our lives to live. We have our lives to live with Christ outside these doors. We have figuring out this presence on all the wells in the desert places. For the time has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And how lovely it is to dwell with Christ in our pilgrimage. It is better to walk a thousand days with Christ than to sit idly in empty courts. So let us long for Christ as he longs for us and meet him where he meets us, in life and in the middle of history, where we are today. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you.
So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. And may the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you, wherever you are coming from and wherever you may be going, that he may give you of his peace. So go, go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve each other and serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.